right, the first Bible reading is from Acts chapter 14, verse 26, to chapter 15, verse 4. So just a bit of context, in um, chapter 13 and 14 of Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey, and they have just returned home to Antioch. So that's where we start from our reading in verse 26. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. A certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. The second Bible reading comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Galatians 2, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sin sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I die to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, 
Christ died for nothing. Thank you, Patricia, for reading. Hello, everyone. It is great to have you here. I uh, endorse everything Paul said about the name tags. I apologise, I don't have one. I couldn't find my name tag at the back. I don't know what that means. Um, yeah, one of the crèche helpers went and had a look on my behalf because they were intrigued about it, but they couldn't find it either. So if anyone has my name tag, you can give it to me later. Hey, uh, it's great to be with you, uh, those online as well. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we're still in Galatians, obviously. Um, we know the history books tell us that the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, uh, even today, it remains one of the most significant periods of um, intellectual and social and moral transformation that has ever taken place in Western civilization. At the very front wave of that Reformation movement, there was a German monk named Martin Luther. Right near the top of the list of Bible books that were very significant for Luther, kind of rediscovering the gospel of God's grace, was Paul's letter to the Galatians that we are reading. And at the very epicentre of the gospel that he rediscovered was an idea that is often referred to today as the doctrine of justification by faith. And Luther famously considered this really to be the doctrine on which a church either stands or falls. And if that is correct, and lots of people who've examined it since have agreed with Luther... But if that is correct, I think it makes our passage today, and especially verses 15 and 16, that really sit at the heart of it. Just about the most important words that we could ever hear and read and mark and learn and inwardly digest, to use the language of an old prayer book, prayer. Um, these verses are very much the linchpin of the letter. Everything that has come before them is designed to lead us to them, and everything that follows kind of arises out of them as a result and at the very heart of them is this idea, this doctrine of justification by faith, which Luther considered so very crucial. And he considered it crucial, not just for churches, but for individuals as well. So this is a great passage for us to be listening to today. If you're following on the outline, you can see a couple of headings. I tell you now, we're not going to get to the third one. Uh, that was a bit overambitious of me on Thursday when the outline was due. Um, we will talk about some implications, but just not in that third section um, and so we're going to start with the idea of Paul's opposition to Peter's hypocrisy. Last week, we heard Paul begin to mount a really uh, staunch defence of the authority of his gospel. It, was, it had authority first because at the end of chapter 1, his gospel was completely independent to the other apostles. He didn't learn it from them, he didn't receive it from them, he didn't consult with them when he first went out to preach. But his gospel had authority as well because at the start of chapter 2, it was in complete fellowship with the other apostles. That is, when they all eventually got together up in Jerusalem, the other apostles recognised the grace of God that had been given to Paul and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And they agreed that he had been as much entrusted by God with preaching to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, as Peter had been with preaching to the Jews. And so Paul's gospel had authority because it was independent from the other apostles and it was in fellowship with the other apostles. There's one more part of Paul's story, though, that helps us see the absolute independence of his gospel, the absolute authority of his gospel. And it has to do with an occasion where Peter got things horribly wrong and it was Paul who had to correct him. And it's described for us here from chapter 2, verse 11. To be clear, what Peter got wrong was not any matter of basic gospel doctrine. It wasn't as if he had started preaching a new message about how it is that people can be saved. 
He had, however, begun to act in a way that wasn't in line with the gospel. It was out of step with the gospel. It was hypocritical to the gospel. Uh, It happened in Antioch, which we know from the book of Acts was kind of Paul's home base. All of his missionary journeys kind of began began and ended at, at Antioch in Syria. And Peter has come to Antioch and followed sometime later by who Paul describes in verse 12 as certain men from James. James being uh, the brother of Jesus and one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Now before the certain men from James came, uh, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, that is the Gentile believers, the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who weren't Jewish by background. Peter used to eat with them before the men from James came. But after the men from James came, Peter totally changed his tune, he totally changed his behaviour, he began to withdraw and to separate from the Gentile believers because he was afraid of what Paul calls the circumcision group. And by the circumcision group, I think Paul is talking about the people who are described for us at the start of Acts chapter 15. So in Acts chapter 14, Barnabas and Paul, they wrap up their first missionary journey, which by the way was through the very region of Galatia that Paul is now writing to. And they end up by going back to Antioch. And then the next verse, chapter 15, verse 1 of the book of Acts, this is what we read. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and they were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Do you see how it all fits together? Paul is in Antioch. Peter has come to join him. And now there's this other group that have come down from Jerusalem and they are claiming in some way to be from James and they're teaching the believers that unless a person has been circumcised, they cannot be saved. And under pressure from this group, this circumcision group, Peter begins to buckle and he starts to withdraw and to separate from the Gentile believers. Now, why was this such a big problem? Uh, surely there are more important things to worry about than who eats with who. Is this just another example of kind of classic Christian nitpicking, finding fault on a matter of freedom? Could there be room here for generous disagreement? Does it really matter who Peter eats with or who he doesn't eat with? According to the Apostle Paul, it really matters. Because you see, the moment Peter starts to withdraw and to separate himself from Gentile believers who aren't circumcised, he actually reverses the gospel and completely undoes all the achievements of Christ. For now that Christ has given himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, and now that Christ has been raised from the dead by God the Father, and remember Uh, the very opening verses of of Galatians. That's the gospel that Paul has already unpacked for us. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, raised from the dead by God the Father. But now that those things have happened, the old distinction of circumcised and uncircumcised, that has really just become a secondary matter of human history and culture. I mean, it remains one of the ways that Jews and Gentiles are different to each other. But for a Jew and a Gentile who have both trusted in Christ, 
It's a difference that should have no bearing at all on the practical expression of loving Christian acceptance and fellowship. To do anything else would be to suggest that circumcision matters more than Christ. And yet it's in this very letter that Paul insists twice that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters at all in Christ Jesus. That there is neither Jew nor Gentile, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. But by beginning to separate himself from the Gentile believers, Peter is not acting in line with the gospel. He's acting out of step with the gospel, hypocritically to the gospel. And even worse, it's not just Peter who gets it all wrong. All the other Jews join him in his hypocrisy. Even Barnabas joins him, and Barnabas should have known better. He'd been there on that first missionary journey, and he'd seen firsthand God's work among the Gentiles. Now, let me tease out four implications briefly, and uh, I hope these will be beneficial for all of us, but perhaps especially for those of us who have been following events in the Anglican Church of Australia this week, you will see some relevance. First, Christian faith can never properly be reduced to the merely intellectual, the merely doctrinal, as if Entry into eternal life and the kingdom of heaven is by theological precision and nothing else. Don't get me wrong, theology matters. It matters a great deal, but good theology is always deeply practical. Life and doctrine go together. Belief and behaviour go together, even in a matter as seemingly insignificant as who we eat with. And so Peter's gospel may still have been on the straight and narrow, But the moment that his behaviour begins to be out of step with the gospel, hypocritical to the gospel, Paul has to get involved. Because practical godliness matters. Second, because theology is practical and life and doctrine go together, some things can only be properly evaluated after really careful theological consideration. Now, we know, for example, that from the book of Acts, Paul had Timothy circumcised, and yet here in Galatians 2, a bit earlier than our passage today, he delights in the fact and kind of boasts in the fact that Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised. Now, we've got the same action there. But what makes it right for Timothy and wrong for Titus? Well, we need to do some really careful theological Reflection there, prayerfully done by the people of God, carefully reading the word of God in full dependence on the spirit of God. Third, sometimes the greatest pressure for Christians to act in ways that are not in line with the gospel comes from those who are convinced that they themselves are faithfully serving the cause of Christ. I take it that was true for the men who came from James, that at least in their minds they were faithfully seeking the salvation of the Gentiles. But the same will be true for us as well. Sometimes the greatest pressure for us to act hypocritically to the gospel will come from those who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Uh, finally then, it takes great courage and immense wisdom to stand firm and to contend for the truth of the gospel. And it must be contended for in every generation. We mustn't take it for granted that the God-given circumcision-free gospel of salvation will be preserved without effort. In every generation, there will be other messages to take people away from acting in line with the truth of the gospel and all that Christ has achieved by his death and resurrection. And so in every age, the line must be held. And we should be so thankful that when Peter and, and all the other Jews, even Barnabas, when they were all heading in the wrong direction, the Apostle Paul courageously contended for the truth of the gospel for people such as us, who by and large, um, the vast majority, maybe even all of us, I'm not totally certain, are not Jewish but Gentile. It was for people like us that he fought so hard to preserve the truth of the gospel. But you see, because Peter's error has been made in public, so too is Paul's correction, Paul's rebuke. And so verse 14, he said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter... Rightly, in the past, you've been willing to eat with the Gentiles, effectively living like one of them, though you yourself are not one of them. Well, how is it now that you're flipping the script and, and compelling the Gentiles to try and live like us, Jews, even though they're not, by being circumcised? That's not the gospel we agree on. That's not the gospel we both proclaim. How are you doing that, Peter? And so now we come to our second point, uh, the, the reason for Paul's opposition, verses 15 and 16, they, they are arguably the two most important verses in the letter. I suspect that even if the only bit of Galatians that had come down to us through history were these two verses, you know, with enough time and enough careful thought, maybe the rest of it could be worked out by implication. But, but these two verses are the foundation of Paul's gospel. They are the, the reason for, for Paul's strong opposition to Peter's hypocrisy. And and he begins with a statement on which he and Peter are just in full agreement. Verse 15, and it's so important, we're going to work this up on the screen, so for a little while you'll be able to track some things that I'm saying. So verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Straight away, there are three words or kind of groups of words here that are introduced to us for the first time in this letter and they're very important words which we can tell here in verse 16 because all three of them are used three times just in this one verse alone and they'll be important through the rest of the letter and so we need to take some time to understand them. The first is the, the word justified and Tala's already helped us with this in our church family spot. Uh, it is a word, it comes straight from, from the law courts. It's a judge's declaration that a person is innocent. Uh, there's been lots of news lately about the, the court case um, between Ben Robert Smith and a couple of newspapers. I haven't really paid too much attention to it. I, I'm not certain that I could even tell you really what the issue is. But obviously in that case, as in any case, uh, the role of the judge is to make a determination as to whether or not the accused is guilty or innocent. Uh, if the judge determines that they are guilty, 
he will convict them. If the judge determines they are innocent, then he will acquit them. He will declare them to be innocent, not guilty. In Bible words, he will justify them. And so when Paul talks about people being justified, he's really talking about people being declared innocent and not guilty by God, who is the judge of all the earth. So that's justified. Uh, as well as that, though, we've got the phrase, the works of the law. Now, in the context of Galatians so far, this is clearly the category into which Paul places any requirement that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved. But I think it's important that Paul doesn't only talk about circumcision here, but rather uses this broader category, the works of the law, because actually, as the letter goes on, one of the arguments that he will mount is that if someone is going to try and go down that path of circumcision in order to be saved, that requirement can't actually be cherry-picked in isolation from the rest of the law. And the requirement for one entails the requirement of them all. If you're going to keep circumcision, you must obey everything to the works of the law. Finally, then, there is the phrase, by faith in Christ Jesus, which means by trusting in, by depending on, by putting one's confidence in Christ Jesus. How does that work? I mean, why does putting your trust in Christ Jesus mean that God declares a person innocent? Uh, especially when we consider everything that the Bible teaches about how we all deserve God's condemnation because of sin, meaning both our sinful nature, a kind of naturally rebellious disposition towards God, as well as the actual sins that we commit. How does trusting in Christ mean that sinners can be declared innocent by God? I mean, here is the nub of the gospel, right? This is the absolute heart and soul of all true Christian faith. If we understand this, we understand the gospel. If we don't, we won't. Remember chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul talked about Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself in death on the cross. He gave himself for our sins, which means that in his death he died as our substitute in our place, on our behalf. To take away the curse of God, the anger of God, that is rightly on us because of sin. Now, that's a pretty full screen right now, and I know it's a bit of a detour, but now that we know what all the words mean, we'll try and put it together and hear the gospel on which both Paul and Peter are in full agreement. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that a person is not declared innocent by God by obeying all the requirements of the Old Testament law, but rather by trusting in and depending on Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Friends, what a remarkable, wonderful, life-changing piece of knowledge. Is there any other piece of knowledge known to man that could rival the significance of this one 
for helping each one of us be prepared for the day when we will stand before our Lord and Maker and Judge. Do you feel how good this news is to know how it is that God will determine a person is innocent? But since this is what Peter and Paul both agree on, about how a person is justified, the next sentence is just completely Captain Obvious territory, isn't it? Verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Actually, in the original Greek, it's a bit more emphatic than that. At the end, it's hard sometimes to do these translations, and it doesn't really work in English, but literally what Paul says at the end there is, uh, by the works of the law, all people will not be justified. Uh, in English, we can't say it quite like that. We say no one will be justified, but Paul said all people won't be justified. In other words, there is not a way for Jews to be justified which is separate to Gentiles, and there's not a way for Gentiles to be justified which is separate to Jews. There is a way for both Jews and Gentiles to not be justified, which is by works of the law. And there is a way for both Jews and Gentiles to be justified, which is by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in light of all that, do you see the vitally important decision that is perpetually before every one of us. It's before us today, it will be before us tomorrow, it will be before us next year. Put simply, what is our plan for when, at the last... We stand before the perfectly holy God, our maker and our judge. What will our defence be in that moment before we hear God declare whether he determines us to be innocent or guilty? Will it be circumcision? Or, or any other works of the Old Testament law? or in fact any other works at all that we might do to overcome our sins and be found innocent before God? No, it can't be. Down that path lies only condemnation. Because remember the end of verse 16, by the works of the law, all people will not be justified. The only way for a person to be justified by God, whether Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference. The only way that God will declare a person innocent is by faith in Christ Jesus. By depending on the one who gave himself for our sins. Perhaps as the 16th century Protestant reformers would have said it, justification is by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone it's 
by trusting in and depending on the one who gave himself for us. And friends, to do that is, is simply to speak to God. It is to admit and to ask. To, to admit that because of sin, what we deserve from God is his condemnation. To ask that God would forgive us on account of the fact that Christ died for us. And so there's a prayer on the screen. And uh, I'm going to lead us in this prayer by praying the words out loud. And if as you've been listening this morning, you know that God is calling you to put your trust in Christ, will you pray with me uh, by silently speaking these words to God in your heart and mind? Let me lead us in prayer. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I'm sorry and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me so that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Oh, well, friends, if you just prayed that prayer with me, and I know that many of us won't have just prayed that prayer just then, but we will have prayed something like it at some point in the past. But if you just prayed that prayer with me now, something momentous has happened between you and God. You have been justified. You have been justified, not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, you might have come to church this morning still carrying before God a burden of guilt because of sin, but you can leave church this morning with the joyful assurance that by faith in Christ Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, your sins have been forgiven and your debt has been cancelled and God regards you as innocent before him. Uh, you don't need to wait anxiously now for the last day, wondering whether or not God will accept you. Already by your trust in Christ, you have been justified. Now, there are all sorts of implications that flow from that, and Paul begins to spell out some of them in verses 17 to 21, and I said before, we're not going to get to that now. But uh, do let's sit together in the wonder of God's mercy and grace. And do... Let's together have this feed our thanksgiving to God for all that he has done. Let it feed our joy as we realise through Christ just how much is now ours. Let's, let's have it feed our assurance about standing before the Lord our God. And let it feed our devotion to the one who loved us and who gave himself for us. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and thank you so much that he did love us and give himself for us and for our sins in order to rescue us from the present evil age. And we pray that you would help us to be those who trust in him, who depend on him, who have our confidence in him as the one by which we can stand before you innocent, even though in and of ourselves we ought to stand before you guilty. Father, increase our joy, increase our gratitude, increase our assurance and increase our devotion to Christ. Amen.